Welcome to In Clear Terms with AARP California. Conversations on issues impacting Californians of all ages. Here's your host, Theon Gordon. Welcome to In Clear Terms with AARP California. Join us as we dive into issues and policies that impact Californians of all ages, particularly older adults, and learn how you can connect with AARP to make our state more livable for all. I am an AARP volunteer and your host, Dr. Theon Gordon. Today, we will talk about the impact extreme heat has on our communities and older adults, as well as what actions we can take to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Joining us to discuss these critical issues is Dr. Linda Rudolph, a public health physician and director of the Center for Climate Change and Health at the Public Health Institute, and Mr. Enrique Huerta, Legislative Director at Climate Resolve. Welcome, Dr. Rudolph and Mr. Huerta. Good morning. Thank you so much for doing this show on this important topic. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Gordon, for hosting. And on behalf of Climate Resolve, we're really happy to be part of this podcast. Well, thank you so much for being here, both of you. And before we dive in, I think we need to understand in clear terms how do you define what extreme heat is? Mr. Huerta, can you explain it for us? Yeah, Dr. Gordon, I'm, I'll, I'll try my best. I am not a meteorologist or a climatologist, but I'm going to relay information that I have read a lot about. And uh, as my college professor used to say, you don't need to be a mechanic to drive a car. So this is going to be my best attempt to get this information in front of you and your audience. The thing about extreme heat is there is no universal definition for an extreme heat day, nor is there a universal definition for a heat wave. And that has been a very big problem for not just public health professionals, but also the state of California. The closest we have to a definition are a couple. One that comes from Dr. Glenn Hooley, who's a climate researcher at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And she defines, not an extreme heat day, but she defines a heat wave as a period when temperatures in a region are outside of their historical average for usually two or more days. This is a really critical definition in that it not only addresses temperature, but it addresses the vulnerable regions throughout the state. Some that may not be used to extreme heat, but who on certain days of the year may experience temperatures that are outside of their average. And then the second definition comes from CalAdapt, which create climate models to project rises in temperature in California. They define a heat wave as a duration of four consecutive extreme heat days or warm nights when the daily maximum or minimum temperature is above the extreme heat threshold. And then we have a third definition, which is more informal and that typically local news outlets will use. And that's any two or more days where the local temperatures exceed 95 degrees. Those are the kinds of definitions that we have to piece together. And we're hoping that in the near future, 
the state begins to provide a more holistic definition of an extreme heat day and heat waves. And actually, UCLA, the Center for Healthy Climate Solutions over at UCLA, just released heat maps a couple of days ago. And they do a good job of defining what an extreme heat day based on landscape and several meteorological indicators. So that may be worthwhile to look into. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Huerta. So as you talk about the time frame in terms of extreme heat and the temperature, we've learned a little bit about what climate science is telling us about extreme heat. But can you tell us how is it trending or where is it trending and how is it impacting California in particular and what areas might it be impacting Californians? That's a really good question. Before we can talk about how this is impacting Californians, I think it would be a good idea to understand some of the global cycles and some of the global implications that are driving extreme heat locally. What we have seen in the past 170 years is that the amount of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere have increased significantly. Just as a way of comparison, for the past 800,000 years, we have had greenhouse gases fluctuate in the atmosphere between 180 parts per million and 280 parts per million. When these greenhouses have dipped to 180 parts per million, we've experienced ice ages. When they've been at 280, that's been the sweet spot. The problem is, for the past about 250 to 170 years, we have been burning way too many fossil fuels. And these fossil fuels that typically come from smokestacks attached to power plants, the tailpipes from cars and diesel trucks, they have been accumulating in the air and they have become heat trapping gases. Another important thing to acknowledge here is that on a daily basis, we get sunlight. This sunlight uh, historically has most, for the most part, bounced back into space. But what we're seeing today is that we have way too many heat absorbing surfaces that no longer bounce it back, but trap it and then slowly re-emit it as solar radiation, which then gets trapped by these greenhouse gases. And so that's the large context here. And as our atmosphere heats up, it has some significant effects on our oceans and our ocean's currents and on our jet streams, which is a freeway in the air that transports cold and hot air around the globe. And so when these two things are altered, then we start to see local effects, like a jet stream that no longer dips into California as much as it used to. And when this happens, it creates circumstances where you can have a high pressure ridge. And what a high pressure ridge is, it's these uh, domes, if you will, of air that circulate in a clockwise manner, and it pushes air outward, and it compresses the air within this dome to the point where it creates heat. And so that's why we're experiencing uh, heat that's longer in intensity, duration, and outside of its seasonal norm. Those are the trends in California. It's getting hotter. Places that are already hot are getting hotter. Places that aren't used to Hot weather, like our coastal areas and our mountain areas, are finding that they are not acclimatized 
to minor increases in temperature, which also has an effect on their public health. And we're finding that regions that have historically not had the resources in the form of shaded streets or weatherized homes are suffering disproportionately as a result of these changes, these global changes with local implications. Thank you so much, Mr. Huerta, for putting that in clear terms. I love how you made this a global issue. It's a bigger issue. And then bringing it into where we are right here in California. It reminds me of the saying, when a butterfly flaps its wings in one place, it could cause an earthquake or a storm in another. That's how systemic this extreme heat is. So now that we understand the science a bit more, Dr. Rudolph, can you tell us about the impact of extreme heat on an individual's health? So let me start by just saying a little bit about what happens in the human body when it's exposed to extreme heat. When our surroundings exceed our normal body temperature, the way that we keep from overheating is by sweating. And we do that by having the tiny blood vessels that are near our skin expand. So some people flush when they're hot and people may get a faster pulse, but that only works for so long. And if it gets too hot for us to keep sweating to keep our temperature down, or if we have some impairment in our ability to regulate our temperature, then we can see people move to some form of heat illness. Another important thing to remember is that when there is very high humidity, uh, a lot of moisture in the air, then the air is already saturated with moisture and it's harder for us to use sweating to become cooler. And so then our core temperature starts to rise, like when we have a fever. And if the core temperature keeps rising, it can cause really, really serious problems. So people can have a whole range of responses on an individual level to extreme heat. Sometimes people get those little blisters on the skin that we call heat rash, that people may get heat cramps or muscle pain because sometimes when you sweat a lot, it changes how the electrolytes are balanced in your body. More serious is heat exhaustion, which manifests with very heavy sweating and a very fast pulse, and people may feel nauseated, tired, dizzy, they may have a headache. And then the most severe heat illness is called heat stroke, and that's when the body temperature goes above about 103 degrees. People stop sweating, they just lose their ability to sweat. They have a fast pulse, they may be confused, they may vomit. That's a time when you really need to take emergency action and call 911. So there's this range of heat illness. There's also a lot of other impacts of heat on people. We know that heat can make people irritable. We see an association between extreme heat and domestic violence or other violence. And we also know very importantly that some people are much more sensitive to or vulnerable to the impacts of extreme heat on the body than others. So very young children and infants, elderly people, people who are overweight, people who have heart disease, people who have respiratory disease, 
people who turn, take certain medications, like people that take diuretics or, or what we call water pills that affect the fluid balance in the body, people that are taking medications, like some of the medications for Parkinson's disease that can make it harder to sweat. Those individuals are all at increased risk for heat illness. And there's also groups of people that are at increased for heat illness, outdoor workers who are doing a lot of heavy labor outside in the heat are at risk, homeless people who can't escape from the heat. And as Enrique alluded to, people that live in neighborhoods that have suffered from historic underinvestment and don't have trees, don't have parks, don't have, you know, newer buildings that have good weatherization and indoor temperature control that have a lot of pavement are all at increased risk from heat. And those neighborhoods we call urban heat islands because they're so much hotter than the surrounding areas might be that have more trees and shade and less pavement. That is a lot to take in. And even as you speak of these urban uh, areas and some of the homeless population, even now utility companies are potentially shutting off power in many places throughout California on hot days to reduce fire risk. So what can a person do when they don't have access to air conditioning or how can we help ourselves and others who may be suffering from some of these extreme heat symptoms? You are absolutely right, Dr. Gordon. Air conditioning is very important and being in an air conditioned space for even a few hours a day will significantly reduce the risk for heat related illness. So if one can, if you don't have air conditioning in your home, it's important to try and go to a place that does have air conditioning. And that could be a shopping mall. It could be a library. Many local governments and local health agencies open up cooling centers. Some places even now are starting to have portable cooling centers where they have air-conditioned buses that people can go in. And again, even for a few hours a day, that's very helpful. People can plan their activities if they have to go out for the cool part of the day. Even going to a shaded location is better than staying in a really hot location. It's important to stay hydrated, to sip water or and not to drink things that cause you to lose fluids like alcohol. You can put cold, wet clothes on or take a cool shower or a bath and avoid strenuous activity that's going to make your body get hotter. It's really important that we check on our neighbors and friends to make sure that they know how to keep cool, find out how they're feeling, and to help them get someplace cooler if they don't have access to air conditioning. I think later we'll probably come back to some of the things that we can do to make these kinds of preventive measures easier for all people in our communities. Thank you for that, Dr. Rudolph. And speaking of all people in our communities, California is a large and diverse state. Clearly, there are inequities at play here. For example, most of the heat records set in California come from the inland areas. And that's also where we see a lot of lower income. Yet there were several typically high income coastal areas that had mild summers. In comparison, Mr. Huerta, could you talk to us or just talk us through what is at stake here when speaking through an equity lens, regionally, demographically, and even economically? 
Yeah, Dr. Gordon, you are spot on with regards to inland areas that are already getting hot or only getting hotter. When you look at inland areas like the Central Valley, for example, Fresno recorded a 120 degree day last year. When you look at inland areas in Southern California, the Mojave Desert, for example, historically known as one of the hottest places on earth, Death Valley recorded a temperature of 130 degrees a couple of years ago. And guess what? A lot of these areas are some of the fastest growing areas in California. And you're also correct to cite that our coastal areas are more mild in temperature. They have a natural cooling mechanism in the form of a marine layer, which tends to hang out during the summer. As someone once said, the coldest winter they experienced was a San Francisco summer. And that's been historically accurate. But like I mentioned early, a lot of these communities are not used to temperatures above 70 degrees for most of the year. We don't know, so far so good, that these marine layers are you know, staying in place. But the thing about climate change, or what is more and more being known as climate chaos, is we know it's going to be bad, but we just don't know how bad. So if these marine layers don't hold up, then folks that are used to 70 degree days are going to be confronted with significant changes like we saw last year in the Pacific Northwest, where communities that had an average summer high of 75 degrees experienced a string of days above 116. And this just caused a lot of impacts, not just on public health, but on public infrastructure, roads buckled, plastic on electric wires melted, causing power outages, probably on the worst days that uh, folks could suffer these things. So extreme heat is not just causing effects in isolation, but it's causing several cascading effects. In other words, it's, it's more like a domino effect. And with regards to inland areas, as uh, both Dr. Rudolph and I have alluded to, there are some significant disparities. We know that there's the urban heat island effect, which a lot of our meteorological readings do not account for, but this adds up to 6 to 10 degrees in temperature. We know that communities that are suffering the most from the urban heat island effect are formerly redlined communities. These are communities that were disinvested on in the past, so they result in more exposure to heat in the form of poorly weatherized housing stocks in the form of more pavement, exposed pavement. And we also know that this historical redlining has resulted in some significant medical effects. These are legacy medical issues that have been affecting generation by generation. Things like hypertension, heart disease, asthma, obesity. You take a look at urban communities that have been redlined and you overlay a map showing the high occurrence of these medical conditions, and there's going to be a very high correlation between both. And to make matters worse, these are communities that don't have the resources to bounce back when there's a climate hazard like a heat wave. More and more we're finding that 
the onus to adapt to extreme heat is being put on people. It's absolutely critical that this information get to them, but we also feel like government needs to play a much larger role and create the conditions in their communities that reduce ambient temperatures. So those are some of the inequities at stake regionally, demographically, and economically. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Huerta. We have a lot of work to do. And of course, it would be wonderful if we had more support in terms of government intervention. But right now, as we are facing this extreme heat, Dr. Rudolph, can you tell us or touch on a little bit more about how extreme heat impacts the community's overall health and maybe even go into a little bit about what we can do about this individually. You know, as I think Enrique really pointed out, as a result of climate change, heat waves have become longer, they've become hotter, they're more frequent, they're more widespread, they're happening year-round. You know, last year there was a heat advisory issued during the Super Bowl in Los Angeles, which takes place in the winter, and they're more lethal than at any time in our history. 2021 was the sixth warmest year on record since 1880. Nights are getting hotter, so people can't rest and recover. I think it's really important to understand that heat waves kill more people annually in the United States than hurricanes, lightning, tornadoes, floods, and earthquakes combined. So it is the most impactful natural disaster if, if you call climate change natural, which it isn't. <laughs> and I like how Mr. Huerte phrased it as climate chaos, because it really does seem to be taking havoc on not just the environment, but on our bodies. Right. And, you know, here in California in 2006, we had a heat wave that was associated with about 650 excess deaths. There was more than 600 excess deaths in the Northwest earlier this summer. In 2003, in Europe, there was a heat wave that was estimated to have caused about 70,000 deaths. And many of those deaths were in elderly people who were at home alone while many of their families had gone on vacation. The other thing that's important about heat is that heat doesn't happen in isolation. So we know that extreme heat is associated with worse wildfires and wildfire smoke also has a really big impact on our health, especially elderly people with um, lung and heart disease, you know, children with asthma. And we know that extreme rising temperatures increase ozone levels, or what we call smog, that also is associated with respiratory disease and cardiovascular disease and a variety of other adverse health outcomes. And extreme heat exacerbates drought. And we're in the worst drought in the western part of the country in 1,200 years. So we have these kind of compounding climate disasters, each of which impacts our health. They seem to be, I, the, the word compounding, they, they build on top of each other. And you've put it in such clear terms in terms of we listen to ozone layer and people don't understand what that really means. But when you talk about how this has uh, the extreme heat affects the ozone layer and that causes the smog, which then impacts our lungs. We think our lungs are getting healthier with less people smoking. But in fact, we've got a smoking gun with the extreme heat. Well, just I just want to note the main reasons that we have smog is from air pollution, and that air pollution comes from burning fossil fuels, which 
Mr. Huerta talked to at the very beginning of the hour. And so these things are just so interrelated. And the most important thing that we can do to protect our health in the long run and to protect the health of our children and grandchildren is stop burning oil, gas, and coal that are responsible for so much of the air pollution that both contributes to climate change and contributes to poor health. It just all is systemic. It all builds on top of each other. So we're talking about this climate change, climate chaos. Let's get to some solutions. What specifically, specifically here in California, what are we doing about extreme heat in both the medical and climate industries? Dr. Rudolph, can you talk a little bit in terms of health? What are we doing specifically in California to address extreme heat? So we're doing a lot. Every county in California and three cities have a local health department that works with local emergency service agencies to monitor what's happening and to issue warnings and alerts about extreme heat. So that's very important that people pay attention. And if you hear that there's a heat warning or a heat alert, as I talked about, plan your activities, think about where you can go that has air conditioning or shading that's cooler, and check on your friends to protect yourselves. But on the larger landscape, we can do a lot to reduce temperatures, both in the buildings that we live in through weatherization, insulation, designing buildings, shading buildings with trees and shrubs and shade. We can expand support for people in lower income households who may be afraid to spend so much money on electricity to keep an air conditioner going that they can't feed themselves properly. We want to make sure that there's support so that people can have air conditioning. We want to make sure that landlords are providing air conditioning in their buildings. Right now in California, landlords have to provide heat and they don't have to provide air conditioning. And that's something that the legislature is looking at that we hope will change in California. We can make sure that buildings have cool roofs that reflect heat so that they don't make buildings become hotter and cool pavements that don't absorb heat and make neighborhoods hotter. Or we can use green roofs that do the same thing. We can use green infrastructure, meaning instead of doing our stormwater management all with concrete, we do it with green bioswales and parks and other infrastructure that will help cool our environments. We can do it with urban forests where we plant trees and You know, Enrique mentioned the whole issue with redlining in the past, but we know that today neighborhoods that were redlined years ago don't have as much tree cover as neighborhoods that weren't redlined. So we can we can correct that mistake from the past and make sure that all of our neighborhoods have good tree canopy and parks. Energy efficiency. We can, you know, help people get more energy efficient appliances so that their appliances aren't creating more heat. And those are some great solutions, great solutions. And and I know that in California, a lot of the energy efficiency is coming from utility companies, et cetera, encouraging people to do that. 
So thank you for those, those solutions. Mr. Huerta, solutions in terms of climate, what can we do? Over the past couple of years, California has really started paying attention to a hazard that historically wasn't on the forefront of their minds. And so last year, California allocated a historic $800 million to address extreme heat throughout the state. Some of those dollars have been rolled out this year, and some of the administrative actions around grant guidelines are currently underway. So that is critical to not just raising the importance of extreme heat, but actually funding actions to uh, adapt our communities and mitigate extreme heat as well. They have also rolled out a very important planning tool in the form of the Extreme Heat Adaptation Plan. This is a plan that built off of a 2016 California Heat and Health Project report, which Dr. Rudolph was a co-author on. And what this Extreme Heat and Adaptation Plan does is it recognizes where the state is currently addressing extreme heat And it also puts forth over a hundred recommended actions that the state can take to address not just reduce ambient temperatures, but address public health and a a number of uh, other co-benefits associated with extreme heat. With regards to some of the things that the climate industry is taking on, uh, Dr. Rudolph mentioned cool paving and cool roofing. These are highly reflective sealants that are easily applied to our streets and to our roofs. And what these sealants do is they mimic nature's natural ability to reflect sunlight back into space before it gets absorbed and transformed into heat. So this has the ability to not just reduce ambient temperatures for people, but also potentially reduce the global warming potential of heat as that is no longer being uh, produced and trapped by greenhouse gases. There are many, many other fascinating and innovating technologies that are out there. We feel like now is the time to open up the doors to all of these potential solutions because we need to find a way not just to remove and reduce the 420 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the air, But we also need to adapt to extreme heat, which is happening now and only getting worse. Well, thank you so much for sharing that information. I believe this podcast could go on all day, but I want to thank you, Mr. Huerta and Dr. Rudolph, for joining us for episode four of In Clear Terms with AARP California. And I'd like to just ask if there's anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up, perhaps sharing with us how we as individuals can help get the message out and get state and local governments to act or any other tips that you may wanna share with our audience. Uh, Dr. Rudolph? Thanks very much, Dr. Gordon, for the opportunity to to be on this podcast and also to, to say one last thing. I've been a physician for many decades and I, along with literally hundreds of thousands of my physician colleagues see climate change as a health emergency. Many of the nation's health and medical organizations have also 
endorsed statements that climate is a health emergency. There's so much climate pollution in the atmosphere right now from burning coal, gas, and oil that it's inevitable that the threat from extreme heat is going to increase over the next couple of decades. But we can moderate that threat if we stop putting out greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as we can. That means investing in a transition to clean renewable energy, investing in public transit and walking and biking so people don't have to use polluting vehicles, supporting the electrification of trucks and buses, not using methane gas in heating our homes, helping farmers use more climate smart approaches for for growing our food. We have the solutions for the climate crisis all around us. We just need the public to tell our elected officials that this is a real priority for them. I have seven grandchildren. I want my grandchildren to have the same opportunities for health and well-being that I've enjoyed. And that won't be possible if we don't take action now to reduce climate pollution. So I think one of the most important things, especially that we as elders can do to protect the health of our communities now and our grandchildren as they emerge into tomorrow's leaders is to tell our elected leaders, we care about our health and we care about our climate and we want them to do everything possible to address the climate crisis so that we can have healthy communities. Thank you. Thank you. So we have to get the word out and in particular to our government leaders in California and in Congress. Thank you for that, Dr. Rudolph. Mr. Huerta, any last words? Yeah, I'd, I'd simply like to echo all of what Dr. Rudolph just said. We need to start changing our behavior, uh, one that goes from relying on automobiles to get around to one that relies on walking and using bikes and using public transit. I feel like as more and more people do this, it starts to popularize that idea. But we can't have folks do this on their own. Currently, conditions are really dangerous. And so they need to get involved at the local level and ensure that their city councils implement pedestrian-friendly policies, biking policies, and ensure that their public transit is efficient and easy to access. On top of that, I just put in the chat a link to an action alert. If your AARP members are inclined to do so, we could really use their help elevating a bill that we're running this year, that we're sponsoring this year, AB 2076. It's the Extreme Heat and Health Reporting System Bill, uh, which is currently in Senate Appropriations Committee. And uh, if they click on that link, they will be asked to enter some information. And when they hit send, that information will get sent to their Senate representative. This is critical because we are hoping that this bill will land in front of the entire Senate in the near future, at which point we need this bill to get voted favorably. So that's probably the most immediate thing that AARP can do, is help us continually elevate our bill by clicking on that link. And I just wanted to also take a short minute to thank AARP. They also have Master Plan for the Aging, And this is a very important document that your members can really learn from. 
not just when it comes to some of the work that's necessary to adapt their communities, but some practical things to do on a daily basis to um, adapt to extreme heat as well. So thank you for AARP. They've been an amazing partner helping to elevate this conversation all over California and at the state legislature. And uh, I wish you all the luck. Once again, I want to thank both of our guests today. But first, I also want to say the link that you click into is www.climateresolve.org. And you'll go to their site and look for the bill AB 2076. And we'll put that in the notes within the show so that you have them. Again, I want to thank our guests, Dr. Rudolph, Mr. Enrique Huerta. Thank you both so much for sharing in clear terms what we can do about extreme heat. To our listeners, AARP is working nationwide to make communities more livable for people of all ages. As part of our Livable Communities campaign, AARP launched a climate chat series that aims to provide educational information and resources on environmental changes and the impact these changes have on older adults' health, wealth, and self, our our bodies. To learn more about AARP California Climate Chats, visit aarp.org forward slash CA. That's California Climate Chats. Visit aarp.org forward slash CA. In future episodes, we look forward to hosting experts and elected officials who shed light on critical issues in our state, speak to how AARP California is working to ensure the voice of those ages 50 plus is heard, and discover how you, our listeners, can learn more and act on these important decisions by giving you the information in clear terms. Thank you for listening. 